Pod here. Welcome to another episode of The Leadership Diet. If this is your first time joining us, you're very welcome. I am an author, lecturer, and leadership advisor to executive teams, C-suite leaders, and multinational organizations all over the world. I've been fascinated with the ideas and practices that underpin impactful and effective leadership for over 25 years. And this podcast is dedicated to understanding those ideas and putting them into practice. Before we start with today's episode, can I ask you a favor? Can you jump over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review and a rating on this podcast? Because that's what drives attention to the podcast for people who don't know we exist. So please share this podcast, please write a review, please leave a rating, and on we go. Well, this is a first for me. It's the first time I recorded a podcast interview in my studio with my guest here with me, and we're drinking a bottle of red wine while we have the conversation. But my guest and my friend today is Michael Bungie Stenier, who, if you don't know him, was once banned from his high school graduation for what he called the balloon incident, was sued by one of his law professors for defamation, and his first published piece of writing was a Harlequin Romanesque story involving a misdelivered letter called The Mail Delivery. All of that is true. Michael is best known for his book, The Coaching Habit, which is the highest selling book on coaching this century with thousands of five-star reviews online. Indeed, I've personally given out hundreds of this book to a whole range of leaders. Why? Well, it's just a really good and useful book. His last book, The Advice Trap, focuses on what he calls Your Advice Monster, which saw him invited to give a TED Talk on the topic, and his upcoming book will be released in early 2022. Michael left Australia about 30 years ago to become a Rhodes Scholar at university, where he met Marcella from Canada, later married her, and now lives in Toronto. This conversation covers a range of topics that Michael writes about, staying curious longer, being more coach-like as leader, and adapting leadership to enable innovation and creativity. And as always with Michael, this is fast, it's fun, and it's full of ideas. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about! Wait! Okay now, from the beginning... You'll never surrender. You know, you see professional golfers and they're like, I've got however many golf clubs you're allowed in your bag. But if you're an ordinary golf player, you basically need four clubs in your bag. What I think most people try and do when they go and play golf slash coaching, I've got 96 golf clubs in my bag. It's the paradox of choice. You're now overwhelmed by all of that. Having a few tested questions that you know do the work in certain situations just makes it easier for you. Welcome to The Leadership Diet. I interview leaders and experts about ways to optimize leadership. What are useful habits and thinking patterns? What are the secrets to high-performing teams? And how do they continue to nurture their effectiveness day after day? In other words, what is their leadership diet? Welcome, Michael, to the latest episode of The Leadership Diet. So good to physically see you in our studio here in Sydney. Exactly. I am raising a glass of wine. So this is fueling the conversation. So this may be the episode that goes totally off the rails. We've both been drinking. I'm a bit erratic at the best of times. Who knows what's going to happen here? But thanks, Bod. It's nice to be here. All the above is true. (laughs) (laughs) It is really, really rare for me to have someone come into our studio and record a podcast while he's drinking wine. It's more (laughs) rare, actually, to have someone come into our studio when his books are on the shelf. And as you can look to your right, there's a whole range of your books on the shelf. Not because you were coming here today, but because your books, I actually give out a lot because they're books I've read and appreciate enormously. And today I want to talk about The Coaching Habit and The Advice Trap and indeed the one that's coming out soon. Mm. So great to have you here. Thank you. Let's talk about coach-like and curiosity as yeah. two main topics and see where they get us, because I suspect they'll get us to many, many different places. <laughs> I have no doubt. One of the phrases that you have quoted, which I love, it came from Harlem Howard, Three Chords and the Truth. Yeah. I think it was adopted later by a U2 song, but what he was referring to is, <laughs> all good country music has three chords and the truth. And yeah. what you did was take what could be a really complex subject like coaching and really go, do you know what? What are the three cores and the truth? And there's seven core questions. Yeah, yeah. What prompts you to do that? Well, I was just irritated about the BS that had kind of grown up around coaching. You know, it became this kind of black box mystery topic where you had to be kind of inducted through several HR processes and then a kind of sprinkling of pastel colored dust and On the one hand, I was such a fan of the possibility of coaching, which is like, it can really make a difference. It can open up 
awareness about yourself and about the world. It can encourage action so you, you make a difference. It can move you to impact. It can really make a difference. But there's just so much bollocks <laughs> created around it. You know, I had gone through some coach training myself and I was like, it's okay, but we could cut 80% of it and focus on the 20% that really makes a difference. And then the next step I was involved in, I hired by a company to help them with their coach training. And this time it was training people in organizations around coaching. I'm like, it's even worse now yeah. because life coach training doesn't just port into an organizational's life. It, it's not the same. So I was like, okay, how do I make coaching unweird? There's no point trying to convince people who already love coaching about the value of coaching because they already get it. I'm interested in the 95% of the rest of us who go, coaching seems a bit odd. And I'm like, I'm going to try and unweird coaching to make it accessible for people. And that means trying to get to the heart of what's most powerful about coaching. And that's a lot of what I try and do is I try and make it simple and accessible for people. One of the things I've often said about what you do, and particularly your writings, is you move to the simplicity on the other side of complexity. Right. And there's no doubt being a leader in particularly the modern age is actually very complex. Yeah. So therefore, if we believe coaching can be useful, how do we make it accessible? How do we make it easy to get to? How do we make it powerful without right. having to go through three years of a master's degree and several weekends? Right, right. I've had quite a number of people who go, oh, I've just done a nine-month coaching course. And actually in this 44 hours, I've kind of done the same. <laughs> it takes a degree of effort to get to the simplicity on the other side of complexity because it's actually easy enough to have simplicity on the wrong side of complexity, which means it's just banal and obvious and flabby and simplistic. And that's not helpful. And not effective. And not effective, yeah. right. And there's a, an experience that I've had in terms of trying to get simplicity on the other side of complexity. There's quite a lot of work <laughs> behind the scenes kind of kneading the dough. And I've just finished writing this new book. I knew what I was talking about. And it took seven drafts before it got to a place of crystalline elegance, which is what I'm hoping. <laughs> I'm, I'm probably deluded about that. But I think it's got to a place where I'm like, oh, this has got an arc and an elegance and a rigor to it that really works. But it takes quite a lot of work on that side just to kind of make that feel like it's accessible for people. Well, I want to come to your upcoming book in, in a few minutes. Yeah. But before we come to that, I have been looking enough to be present with you and even indeed present at different conferences where you've been headlining and I've been taking the kind of afternoon <laughs> slot to wake people back up again. I have a distinct memory of you presenting in a university conference in Queensland one or two years ago. Right. The U room full of absolutely hyper-educated, really good intention folks who've been studying coaching for a while. One or two walk into the room going, who is this guy writing this kind <laughs> of book called The Coaching Habit? And he claims it's the best-selling book of the world, et cetera, et cetera. And then walking out going, that was so helpful. Yeah. And I think what it is, is because you have gone to the other side of complexity and you've, right. you've distilled that. Let's just jump mm -hmm. to what you suggest are the seven core questions that are really helpful for leaders. So right. we're, we're talking about leaders here to help them be more coach-like on a regular basis. Right. Let's start with what you call the kickstart question. Sure. What is that? Well, the, the question itself is simple. It's simply what's on your mind. And if you're listening to this, you're like, wait, Michael, didn't you just steal that from Facebook? Well, like, I'm going to say I came up with it before Facebook did, but it's true <laughs> that it's also the question that Facebook does, or at least used to use as a prompt. They read your book and covered you, is <laughs> yeah, what you're saying? <laughs> exactly. Mark Zuckerberg, I'm coming after you. Here's the power of that question. One of the things that bedevils organizations is too much conversation about stuff that doesn't really matter. And if you're a leader or a manager or anybody, your kind of weekly check-ins, your weekly one-to-ones, and how devastatingly tedious those are most of the time, because you've got these games being played. The, the manager's going, okay, we've got to do this because I've got to hold you accountable and make sure that you're not being a maverick and causing chaos and tell me all the stuff that you're doing. And the person who's on the other side of the table is going, okay, let me tell you all the stuff I'm doing to prove that I'm worth my salary and that I'm a, a valued member of this team and all that sort of stuff. And I'm over-dramatizing just to make a point, but most one-to-ones feel like they suck energy and time rather than contribute. One of my foundational beliefs about coaching in organizations is if you can't coach in 10 minutes or less, you don't have time to coach. You've got to get into the interesting stuff. And what's powerful about what's on your mind is it says, let's get on with it. Tell me the thing that you're excited about or worried about or nervous about or anxious about or just consumed by at the moment. Tell me that. 
Because my guess is if you're if we start with what's on your mind, we're immediately talking about something that matters to you. And that's the second thing that's part of this pod. It's about moving the responsibility to making the choice about the conversation to the other person. What's on your mind says, tell me what the agenda for this conversation is about. Tell me how I can serve you. Tell me how I can support you. Tell me how I can help untangle the thing that's entangled you. That combination of acceleration into a topic that matters whilst allowing the power and responsibility to stay with the person who's, who owns the topic is part of the power of the kickstart question. It forces the leader then to, to listen. Right. And if you're a leader going, I'm not sure about this, here's the other brilliant thing about it. It means that you don't really need to over-prepare for a meeting because you don't even really sure what the topic's going to be. And it's not your job to be the subject matter expert of the topic. I mean, this is one of the most foundational shifts you can make as a leader, but it can be liberating for everybody involved. If you think of your job as a leader as to be the person who figures out what the real problem is, rather than the person tasked with coming up with all the answers, suddenly you're a thousand times more helpful, <laughs> you're a thousand times more empowering, and you actually free up some of the obligation and responsibility you might otherwise feel. Okay. Your second question really is interesting, and it, I think it throws most people when they understand the process. And it's an awesome question, pardon the pun. It is. What, first of all, what is it and why do you put it there? Yeah, so I call this the best coaching question in the world, which is, you know, a bold Small claim. Call, <laughs> a <right>? bold claim. <laughs> but AWE and what else? So it's an acronym. So what I love about it, I still remember this moment part where I'm like, I'm AWE, and I suddenly realized, oh my goodness, that's the acronym for and what else is or as an awesome, it's literally an awesome question that just made my little marketing heart sing. <laughs> The key insight behind this question pod is that the first answer, your question, is never the only answer, and it's rarely the best answer. When we talk about we want managers and leaders and individual contributors to be more coach-like, when people ask me, well, what does that mean? It's like, can you stay curious a little bit longer? Can you rush to action and advice giving a little bit more slowly? Most people are pretty bad at staying curious. Most people are advice-giving maniacs. And what else does two things? It allows you to keep the conversation in the place of curiosity. Because actually, most people don't even hear you say and what else. They just hear you extending the question. Yeah. But the second thing you're doing is you're taming your advice monster. You're managing your own desire, anxiety, certainty that you've got a brilliant answer that needs to be spoken out right now, and you're just slowing that down. So you allow that other person to maintain ownership of the problem that they're wrestling with. And when they maintain ownership, you're giving them the chance to become more confident and more competent and more autonomous and more self-sufficient and wiser and smarter. And who wouldn't want that for somebody on their team? You mentioned Taming the Advice Monster. I'm going to put a link into our show notes to the TED Talk you've done oh, yeah. on that whole topic because it is such an important topic. Thank you. But you're absolutely right. I find that that question or iteration of the question, A, extends invitation for the person to keep thinking about. And secondly, as you said, they arrive at what ultimately becomes the conversation at hand. Which leads to the question that I use the most from your book, which is what you call the focus question. What's the challenge here for you? What's the real challenge here for you? I mean, the first thing to say to, to folks listening is these seven questions, you don't have to use them in order. You can play around with them. Whatever the right question is, ask that question. I probably use and what else the most, but I probably use this the second most because in most organizations, people are wasting or just using a vast amount of time and effort and energy trying to solve the wrong problems because they think that the first challenge that shows up is the real challenge, and it almost never is. So what's the real challenge here for you? Of all of the seven questions, the, the scripting of this is the one that makes the most difference. Because you could ask somebody, hey, Pod, what's the challenge here? If I go, hey, Pod, what's on your mind? And Pod goes, blah, blah, blah. I go, okay, so what's the challenge here? What I'm likely to get is a bit of a restatement of what I've already heard. Or abstraction or blaming somebody else or whatever. Exactly. Now, if I go, hey, Pod, okay, I hear what's on your mind. What's the real challenge here? That's going to make you work harder because implicit in that question is there's more than one thing going on. What is the real challenge? So now I'm asking you to be strategic. Figure this out. What's the real challenge? But I think the magic happens when you add for you at the end of it. Hey, Pod, I know what's on your mind. What's the real challenge here for you? And in coaching jargon, what's happening is you're, you're shifting the conversation from coaching for performance, which is like fixing the thing, mm -hmm. to coaching for development, which is growing the person while fixing the thing. What's the real challenge 
is focused on the fire. What's the real challenge here for you is focused on the person who's fixing the fire. Mm -hmm. So when you ask what's the real challenge here for you, you'll often notice a shift to going, here's the external problem that I've been trying to deal with to here's what's hard about this for me. And it's often quite a different issue that you're dealing with. Yep. It's like, oh, what's the real challenge? Tracy in accounting is a nightmare. <laughs> All right. What's the real challenge here for you? I'm really not great at giving feedback. Yep. And I'm a bit nervous about conflict. Yep. And I'm not sure that I can have a conversation with accounting when I work in sales. And, you know, who knows what? I mean, this is made up example. So who knows? But Rather than me trying to fix Tracy from accounting, now I'm going, would it be helpful if we did some work around how to give feedback? Yeah. Would it be helpful if we did some work around how to navigate politics in an organization? Would it be helpful if we understood why you spend your time winding up Tracy? Because yeah. that's what you do. Stop winding up Tracy in accounts. Yeah. What I love about that question, and which is why one of the reasons I keep coming back to it, is the word real. Yeah. And the for you part. And I had an example just recently where I was working with someone who's in a HR director role, very, very experienced leader, mm -hmm. very, very capable leader. And the early part of our conversation was talking about all of the demands of the department coming her and their way. Yeah. And when I went to, what's the real challenge here for you? The answer became, I actually have not made time to help develop my team. Right. To address that challenges that are in need of us. Dramatically different situation. It's completely different. Yeah. And, you know, if people are listening and they're like, how do you start building a reputation for being a strategic thinker? Here's what you do. Three quarters of the way through a meeting, you stick up your hand and you go, let me just check. What's the real challenge here for us as a team? <laughs> Everyone's like, oh, yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> oh, yeah, you're right. Oh, God, he, he always comes up with these great <laughs> questions. And I'm like, because actually that's what strategy is, is figuring out what the real challenge is. Because if you consistently keep working out what the right battle is to battle, what the right fight is to fight, what the right fire is to deal with, then you're much more likely to have success and have impact and create meaning in the work that you're doing. So it's a, it's a very powerful conversation. So you're starting with a what's on your mind, you move into and what else to explore the conversation. Yep. You move into what's the real challenge for you. Then you move into a foundation question. Yeah. And to really kind of cement that person to dig deep, be honest. Yeah. What does that sound like and what, what happens with that? Yeah, the foundation question is what you want. Now, of the seven questions, this is the one that's often trickiest to get the tone right <laughs> because what you want can sometimes sound like, what the hell do you want? Or what do you want? Or what do you want? I mean, it can be <laughs> frustration, it can be blame, it can be irritation, it can be all sorts of things. But if you're genuinely curious, you're like, okay, so you're talking to the woman in HR you, you mentioned before. It's like, okay, the real challenge here for me is I haven't built capacity in my team to deal with the stuff that's coming at you. You're like, got it. So tell me, knowing that, what do you want? And what she's going to do in that moment perhaps is actually create a sense of a vision for her team, a sense of the support that she requires. It kind of moves you into a future state to kind of go, this is the thing that I, I'm hungry for. And then actually you can start recycling the questions. You're like, oh, got it. If that's what you want. What's the real challenge here for you around that? Suddenly you're into an interesting, rich conversation, solving a real problem for that person. So, you know, when I, in earlier drafts of the book, I called this the goldfish question. Because when you ask what you want, often people's eyes will pop up and their mouth makes that kind of guppy thing that a, a goldfish does, because it's hard. This is the hardest question to answer. But if you can get clear on what you want, it puts your feet on the ground to take action. How difficult do you think people find that question? I, I think it, often it's really tricky. Mm -hmm. The greatest example, I mean, the most common response to that question is silence. Yeah. <laughs> and if they've got a fast answer, then don't believe it because it's a bit too glib. So then you go, yeah, but what do you really want? And this is also a question you can ask yourself. I find it particularly powerful if I'm in conflict with somebody or things are just off the rails a little bit. And I need to have a conversation with them to get things back on the rails. So call it feedback, call it coaching. But if I'm prevaricating around a feedback conversation, because I'm not one that likes conflict, <laughs> I'm like, mm. oh, maybe, maybe they'll just read my mind. <laughs> or maybe this, this situation will just magically resolve itself by me kind of passively, aggressively ignoring it. But if I go, okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm avoiding this. What's going on here? Well, most often, for me anyway, it's because I'm not clear on what I want. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, okay. 
I need to have a conversation with Ainsley. He's one of the people on my team. What do I want? What's the thing I'm asking for? What do I need her to know? And as soon as I get clear on what I want, the rest of that feedback conversation becomes much more obvious to me. I need to tell her this. I need to explain that. And then I need to make a request about what I want from her. It's a question that can unlock stuckness as well. If you circle back up to your early comment about, you know, I've spent nine months of coaching and da-da-da, now it boils down to this. One of the earliest definitions of coaching is unlocking people's understanding and potential. And right. I think what you're saying here is this question is, the reason it's difficult is because you're unlocking something that people doesn't actually understood right. yet. Yeah. The leader's role here is to, by using three or four questions, at this stage we already have four questions, you've unlocked a whole blocked notion of thinking or potential that just wasn't available to that person yeah. just by the process. You know. In an organization, you're trying to do two things. You're trying to move strategy forward. So you're focused on the right things that make a difference. And you're trying to bring out the very best in your people. So they have, you've got the best people doing the best things to move your strategy forward. You know, one's culture, one's strategy. Part of what is brilliant about coaching as a leadership skill is it straddles both of those. Mm -hmm. When you're asking a question about what's the real challenge here, you're asking a strategy question. When you're asking what's the real challenge here for you, it becomes a culture question because you're actually going, how are you going to change your behavior to solve this problem? Yep. And changing behavior means changing a culture. Yep. What do you want is a, it's a really personal question, but it allows people to get to grips and take accountability and responsibility for a situation at hand for them that can allow them to take that accountability and that ownership that we talked about before you know, one of the greatest challenges in organizations is pushing responsibility to the place where it best lies. Mm -hmm. You know, responsibility has this habit of sneaking back up the hierarchy. Yes. <laughs> because the people who whose position is they're like, it'd be so much easier if my boss took this on. And the boss goes, it'd be so much easier if I took this on. I don't have to rely on those other people. I can take Why did I let it go in the first place? Exactly. <laughs> so if you can build an organization and a culture where responsibility is continually pushed to the place where it best fits, that's powerful. But you often need to do that through coaching because that allows, that opens up the invitation to take responsibility. And indeed, understand what responsibility looks like and then, and then right. take it on. Yeah. Right. You move into what you call the lazy question, which <laughs> right. is uh, counterintuitive to the whole process. It is. At Boxer Crayons, which is the company we have to help organizations move from advice-driven to curiosity-led, we got three key principles around coaching. It's be lazy, be curious, be often. So being curious, we're kind of talking about, which is like, you know what, too many of us are kind of wired to give advice, all sorts of good reasons for that, but we want to shift that. Being often is actually the more kind of more radical of the three principles because it says every intervention, every interaction with somebody in person, text, email, synchronous, asynchronous, all of those can be more coach-like because it's about staying curious a bit longer. But being lazy is the most provocative of the three principles because if you're the person who listens to leadership podcasts, you're not a lazy person. You're like, I'm driven. I want to get better. I want to make a difference. I want to achieve. I want to win the prize. I want to lead the team or the unit or the company. You're not inherently a lazy person. But the lack of laziness, that means that you're forever trying to fix other people's problems for them, kills you and it kills them and it kills your culture and it kills your business because it's utterly unscalable and it's deeply disempowering. So laziness is about understanding that your job is to help them figure out what the real problem is and actually take it on. The lazy question is, how can I help? Or kind of slightly more bluntly put, what do you want from me? When people first hear that, they're like, how is that a lazy question? Because that just sounds like you're asking for more work. Yeah. But two things to say about it. The first is, when you ask that question, it interrupts your natural inclination to jump in and just do it anyway. Because that's what most people do. And how can I help or what do you want from me forces you to slow down your intervention forces the other person to make a clear request. Yep. When you hear that clear request, you then have a choice to say yes or no or maybe to that. Yep. So the fact that they can make a clear request and what they want doesn't mean you have to give it to them, but at least now the cards are on the table and now you can figure out a way through it. And often I find when, when leaders do that, the answer to the question 
is, do you know what? I don't need anything. Exactly. Which is a surprising answer. Yeah. They're like, I just needed to bitch and moan for like two minutes. Yeah. They're like, oh, what a relief. I was just about to send 16 emails to try and fix this for you. you. Exactly. And they're like, you know what? Or they go, I don't know what I want. And then you can go, okay, that's fair enough. Come back and let me know when you've got something to ask me for. Yeah. And um, you've just saved yourself hours of work. Not to mention the weight of going, I, how, do I, how do I fix that for that person? The other thing that that question does, which is, might have been in your subtle design, I'm not sure, but it gives the leader insight into what's really the concern for that person or That's where right. the future development might be yeah. or how do I open a door down the track for this yeah. person, etc. So many of these other questions like what do you want or how can I help, often the best response to their answer is another question. And quite often it's what's the real challenge here for you? It's like, so how can I help? I really need this. Got it. So you need this. What's the real challenge here for you in getting that thing? Oh, (laughs) now now they're figuring a whole bunch of stuff out and you've still not taken on responsibility. There's no monkey in your back at this stage. Yeah, exactly. The classic story, I think from HBR sometime around, look, you can bring your monkey in to my office. You can show me the monkey. We can talk about the monkey. We can admire the monkey. But when you leave... You're taking the monkey. That's it's right. not my monkey. It's your monkey. I don't want a whole office of other people's monkeys. That's kind of the primate explanation of coaching, which is like, stop taking on monkeys. You all have too many monkeys. Never go. <laughs> you then move into question six, which I have to say is one that when I first read this and you and I first met, surprised me. Yeah. And it's probably one of the most important questions in the whole process from a leadership perspective. And you, you call it the strategy question, which is basically a whole yes or no type question. It but, is. but talk it through. Sure. It's like, if you're going to say yes to this, what must you say no to? Because we all know organizations are rife with people saying yes to stuff that they have no capacity for. And I heard a definition of strategy once, which is strategy is saying no to the stuff you want to say yes to. Mm-hmm. Because it's easy enough to say no to the stuff that nobody wants to do. But anytime you have a conversation with strategy, it's like all those other things that are kind of edging in. And who hasn't been in an organization where they're like, we've got 96 KPIs. (laughs) Like, that's impossible. Let me lay out the 19 strategic imperatives for this quarter. You're like, impossible. But the fierceness of strategy is this kind of resolute focus on what really matters. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to make that call unless you understand the opportunity cost, unless you call it out. So when you're sitting around a table, metaphorically or, or literally, and you've agreed to commit to something, if you assume that you're probably already at full capacity, then the question to ask is, right, well, for us to realistically say yes to this, we've got to say no to some stuff. So what are we going to say no to? And now you've created context to your choice. Yeah. We're only going to be able to say a real yes to A unless we kill off B and C. Are we willing to kill off B and C so that we can do A? Because that's going to break hearts. It's going to involve letting some people go. It's going to involve a loss on the books. It's going to involve a miserable sense of sunk cost because we've invested X million dollars in making B and C to where they are now. Are we up for that? And now you're into a real conversation about what really matters. I've, I've often found with that question, the answer surprises me as the asker of the question in that I assume we're going into a strategic choice like you've just outlined. And the answer sometimes is, well, actually, if I want that, I've got to choose not to try to be their friend, right. which is a whole identity right. question of a very different nature, but probably the most important answer to the question. I mean, these questions are scalable. So I think you can have quite an intimate conversation where you're like, you're just with somebody and like, I love that you're making this commitment for this to be realistic. What are you going to say no to? Mm. I'm going to say no to being a victim in this relationship. I'm going to say no to working 16 hours a day. I'm going to, I can't do that anymore. You're like, right. So if you're going to say no to that and yes to this, what's the real challenge here for you? And you see, it's like, you keep coming back to that question, Mm -hmm. which is like, okay, so what are we wrestling with? Because as soon as you figure out what the real challenge is, magic can happen. You then finish up with a learning type question. Mm -hmm. And again, it's a surprising one in that it wouldn't be the obvious one to put into this whole process, but it is very effective. Yeah. What is it and why do you find it to be effective? So the learning question is, what was most useful here for you or what was most valuable here for you? People don't learn when you tell them stuff. (laughs) It's super irritating, particularly if you're in the world of kind of learning and development like you and I touch on pod. And they don't really even learn when they do stuff. They learn when they have a moment to reflect on what's just happened. 
but that's so it's so rarely presented for them. So if you're committed to building the capacity of the people you work with, and if you're committed with building your own capacity as well, adding this question onto the end of honestly, almost any conversation can be really helpful. You know, get to the end of this podcast and allow one of us to ask you what was most useful or most valuable about this podcast for you. You're going to name something and it's more likely to stick in your brain. Imagine a conversation with one of your vendors. You're negotiating about the next year's contract. At the end of the the conversation, you go, that was great. Let me just check what was most useful or most valuable about this conversation for you. And two things start happening. The first is the other person starts articulating what was valuable for them. And they will have missed it otherwise because nobody's ever asked them that before. So now they're like, oh, this is what I've learned from that. The second thing that happens is that you're framing this conversation as valuable. So now every time they meet you, they have a valuable conversation with them because you literally ask them what was most valuable. Not was this valuable, but what was most valuable. So it's just an assumption that this is a valuable conversation. And then the third thing, I know I said there was two, but there are three, is that you get feedback around what was valuable. (laughs) So you're like, right, do more of that, do less of the other thing. And what's so surprising is that what you think was valuable in the call is often not the thing that they think is valuable in the call. That's exactly right. I, I, I worked with a CEO once, well, his team, in fact, not, not him personally. And he was ranked in, like, in the top like, 99 percentile of almost every leadership assessment he'd ever done. Yeah. A brilliant leader, worked in multiple countries and geographies. And I asked him once, you know, what, what have you learned that's allowed you to be so good? And he said, well, years ago, someone said to me, every time you're working with someone, you give them feedback. Ask them what was useful or valuable, et cetera. Yeah. He said, I learned two things along the way. One is it was never the answer I expected. <laughs> right. So I was always learning more. Yeah. And two, when it was what was valuable to them, I kept doing that. Right. They told me what they wanted. I kept doing it. Exactly. That's simple. So if you're having a conversation with, if you're in sales, at the end of a sales conversation, go, what was most useful? What was most helpful about this conversation for you? They're like, I really loved how you did this. You're like, oh, I thought it was when I was explaining the widget, but it wasn't the widget at all. It was this, right. And you're just navigating through complexity. If you're going to pick up on kind of Dave Snowden's work and Canavan and his kind of complicated Welsh (laughs) model, it's like to navigate through complexity is about small steps seeking feedback. And we do a poor job at seeking feedback for the most part. Mm-hmm. Well, this question was most useful and most valuable here for you is at the end of a small step, seek feedback. And you then reorient yourself to the person, to the situation, and you're allowed to then make the next step in a way where you have slightly more sure footsteps. So we have seven questions and I'll, I'll, we'll put links in the show notes back to a box of crayons and the resources you already Amazing. have on yeah. there. Yeah. So to the cynical folks amongst us, of which I might be one, Michael, you know, who, who knows? <laughs> You know, seven questions, that sounds really, really simple. I heard you coach superstars like Brené Brown live and you've used these questions. I know you've been on stage at global conferences with uh, Fortune 500 companies, et cetera. Right. Do you use these questions and are you sure these are the right ones? And if not, what happens for you when you're in those kind of pressure situations? Yeah, look, there are a bazillion questions. So it's not like you can't use these other questions. But if you're trying to become more coach-like, if you're trying to stay curious, if it's not easy for you. I mean, some people are like, look, I'm just naturally gifted. I love that stuff and I'll just use whatever questions I want. But if you struggle with it, it can be helpful to have a few questions to focus on rather than a lot of questions. Here's a possible metaphor. This may not work. I've never used this before, but I'm going to go with it. Let's try it. It's like if you're a golf player, you know, you see a professional golfers and they're like, I've got however many golf clubs you're allowed in your bag and they kind of worry about it and they kind of fine tune it. But if you're an ordinary golf player, you basically need four clubs in your bag. You need a driver, you need an iron to hit it up the middle, you need a little chippy thing so you can chip it on, and then you need a putter. And pretty much you can get around a whole golf course with four clubs. What I think most people try and do when they go and play golf slash coaching, I've got 96 golf clubs in my bag. What are you? And in fact, it's the paradox of choice. You're now overwhelmed by all of that. Having a few tested questions that you know do the work in certain situations, just makes it easier for you. You don't have to sit here going, all right, which of the 123 questions should I draw upon here? You go, what's the real challenge here for you? But what you speak to is an anxiety people have, which is if I just keep using the same questions, aren't people going to call BS on that after a while? Mm, (laughs) Aren't they going to go, why are you getting paid so much when all you've got is four questions you keep repeating? 
And the answer is, I'm getting paid so much because I have four good questions I keep repeating. And they <laughs> work. And they work. Yeah. If you people want to hear me do this, a month ago or so, I was on Brene Brown podcast, just as you said, Dare to Lead. And about in the 40, 45 minute mark, I actually coached Brene because I wasn't expecting that. She was like, okay, now coach me. I'm like, okay, don't screw this up, Michael. You'll hear me use like not even all seven questions. I like maybe three or four of those questions. And it's quite a powerful coaching experience. And what you'll notice is how Brene's understanding of her own challenge shifted enormously. Yeah. That's right. And I coached uh, Jean-Philippe at the time was the uh, head of global sales for Microsoft in front of 4,000 people at that kind of Microsoft sales conference. It was this, honestly, it was a bit of a kind of career highlight for me. I'm like, okay, again, Michael, don't screw this up. And we coached for 10 minutes and I asked maybe three questions Mm -hmm. in 10 minutes. I just, because there's one question I kept using and he's told me this, it was a profound experience for him. And it was a profound experience for the people watching as well, because he went to quite a personal place. And what you partly need to manage here is your own anxiety of being a fraud. Because one of the deeper resistances about being more coach-like is that it puts you in a place of disempowerment. I know that sounds a bit kind of provocative, but part of the glory of coaching is that it is an act of empowerment of the other person. You're asking them to figure out the challenge. You're asking them to figure out the answer. But empowerment means giving up some power so that they can have it. Yeah. So look, when you give advice, you just feel better. Even though it's the wrong advice, trying to solve the wrong problem, you're like, look at me. I'm adding value to this conversation right away. I'm, re- I'm establishing or reestablishing or confirming my authority. I've got people who are grateful for me. They're tugging at the hem of my robe. This is amazing. I've got them out of my office. Move on. When you ask a question, you're like, okay, this is going to take a bit longer than I thought. Was that a good question? What answer are they about to come up with? What if I don't understand their answer? What if I do understand their answer and it's nuts? (laughs) What if they have a better answer than the one that I wanted to give them? All of these are moments of ambiguity and uncertainty and anxiety, but you're doing it in service for you and for them and for your organization, which is this is the way people learn and grow. And having a few good questions allows you to know that these are tried and tested and trusted. Things I, I just want to double down on that you've just spoken about. You mentioned that podcast with Brené. And for anyone who really wants to hear this coaching process in action, that's a fabulous example of yep. it. For the reasons you've just said, you lived your truth, Michael, in the sense <laughs> of here's the questions that you believe really are powerful. Yeah. And as I listened to that recording a few weeks ago, hearing Brené, who was brilliantly vulnerable and honest she with was. you in that conversation, shift her own understanding of her issue to something dramatically different in a yeah. few seconds with four or five questions was not only profound, but also illustrated why these questions really work. Yeah. And so a great example of that. So it's definitely worth listening to. It also illustrates, uh, I think it's, I think it might be Peter Block, who I know who you're I a love. fan of, yeah. who says, you know, coaching gives people the responsibility for their own freedom. Yeah. That's the notion of you go into this process, not knowing where it's going to go to, but you got to trust it's going to go somewhere. Right. But it's there somewhere. It's not your somewhere. And, that's right. and that's responsibility for it. The last thing that comes to my mind is I share a, a mutual friend slash mentor in Marshall Goldsmith. Yes. And I remember asking him once about the stakeholder centric coaching process that he's famous for. And he says, when all else fails, go back to process. It always works. <laughs> yeah. As long as you have the right process. Right. And right. In, in his case, he clearly has. And I think in the case of the coaching habit, yeah, it's a great process. It kind of speaks to the power of structure and process. I think part of the future of coaching involves AI holding the space for you. You know, Pod is in his office here. It's a great office, but he doesn't have a coach handy. So he goes, hey, insert name of whatever AI you're using. I want you to coach me. And we'll call it Siri because, you know, could be any of them. But Siri goes, okay, Pod, what's on your mind? And Pod goes, blah, 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 blah. And Siri goes, Siri will have AI kind of figuring out going, I've heard some of this before. I haven't heard this before. So Siri goes, ah, you've talked about this before. Pod, what's the real challenge here for you? And Pod goes, blah, 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 blah. And Siri goes, okay, got it. What else? 
And Pod goes, blah, 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 blah. And, go, and Siri goes, okay, sure. So which of those feels the most urgent thing for us right now? And Pod goes, A. Okay, Siri is great. So what's the real challenge here for you, Pod? And Pod goes, blah, 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 blah. And Siri's picking up words and phrases, but actually mostly Siri is sticking to a script. Siri goes, great. What else, Pod? Blah, blah, blah. What else, Pod? Blah, blah, blah. Okay, Pod, so tell us, what's the real challenge here for you, Pod? Blah, blah, blah. Right. So what do you want, Pod? Oh, good one, Siri. I think I want this. Right. So what's the real challenge here for you, Pod? Blah, 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 blah. And this conversation is created by structure and space. And actually, I mean, one of the things that you hear in the Brene coaching is how much silence is in, in that. <laughs> and so a lot. I mean, I've got a lot of comments going, I thought the recording had broken <laughs> because I'd ask a question and there'd be, and it feels like a lot. It's like single digit seconds. It's not a minute. <laughs> it's yeah. like maybe five or maybe 10 seconds between me asking something and an answer coming from her. But I, I had just enough nerve and just enough experience to hold that space for her. And, you know, AI will do that. And if you're a manager or leader listening to this podcast, here's what should be amazing reassuring about that for you. You can trust this process. Mm. You don't have to be a people person. You don't have to be a coach. You don't have to even like people. You can, but if you have an ability to ask a good question and stay present to them, kind of magic happens. I love that notion of magic happens. Clearly the magic that's in the coaching habit has resonated with a lot of people because it is a, it is a coaching classic book now. It is the number one best-selling book in coaching in the world ever, as you don't see at all anywhere. I'm not sure but, ever, but it's sold more than a million copies. And so it's definitely the best-selling coaching book of the century so far. Let's, let's take the century so far. I'm going to aspire to ever. <laughs> well, it's still only, was it, is it five years old, six it's years old? It's five years old and still uh, like the number one coaching book on Amazon uh, at the moment. So, so. Let's, let's, let's take yeah. that. But you didn't rest in your heels there. You, you moved to a follow-up, which was not necessarily a follow-up per se, but it expanded the whole notion of this right. into the advice trap. What I love about the advice trap is the idea you've, you've broken down every human being's inherent desire to <laughs> offer value yeah. and give value. And you've broken it down into you know, three core areas, tell it, save it, control it. As I read that for the first time, it resonated with me on many, many levels, but it certainly talked to leaders get promoted on the back of being able to right. tell it, control it, save it. Yeah. And now we're asking him to rein that in a little bit. That's Why right. so? The origin for the advice trap, you know, the coaching habit was a book that I was compelled to write. I just, I, I just could feel the need for it. It really drew me forth. The advice trap was more of a battle for me because I was like, does the world really need this book? But the person I was really trying to write it for, it wasn't for the person who had read the coaching habit and gone, I love this book. It's amazing. I get it. And I'm using the seven questions. And it wasn't for the people who read The Coaching Habit and went, this is a load of BS. <laughs> I hate this book and I'm never going to be this coaching. Both of those people, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know there's a whole bunch of people who I'm sure haven't enjoyed that. One of my favorite reviews on Amazon, actually, for The Coaching Habit is uh, a woman called Elizabeth goes, this is the worst book ever written. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> Wow. So you're saying the coaching habit book is even worse than the the pirated summaries of the coaching habit book that are out there. That's all right. I yeah, can take it. And she does take that. <laughs> it's for the people in the middle who went, you know what? I get intellectually the power of curiosity. I get intellectually the power of these questions, but I find it really hard to change my behavior. It's really hard to shift in a way that allows me to, to stay curious, even though I get it. I get it, but I can't do it. So it took me into the world of behavior change. And it took me into, you know, looking at people like Bob Keegan and Lisa Leahy, who you and I both know and admire in terms of their work around immunity to change and the difference between technical change and adaptive change. Ron Heifetz talks about, I'm like, okay, so for some of us, coaching is technical change. You got to learn the thing, you practice the thing, you get the hang of it, you're away. For many people, it's adaptive change, which is like, it's not additive. It needs rewiring for me to be able to get this. And that's what I'm trying to do in, in the advice trap. And the advice monster became the symbol of the thing that keeps pulling you back. <laughs> you keep trying to be more coach-like and then your advice monster grabs you and drags you back into the shadows and goes, no, no, you don't want to do that because you want to be the person who has the answers and you want to be the person who saves everybody and you want to be the person who maintains control. And 
the truth is that there's an argument for all three of those things because there are short-term wins always to being the person who always has the answer and who feels like you have to, that's your job to have all the answers. And there's short-term wins to being the person who self-sacrifices and makes sure that nobody ever struggles or stumbles or finds it difficult. And there's short-term wins to the person who kind of keeps their hand on the steering wheel the whole time and controls it and doesn't give up any power, doesn't let anybody else lean in. And there are prices that are paid for that. And part of this work is to understand the prices and the punishments of those behaviors. And when you start seeing the prizes and punishments, you start understanding the choices you're making. Mm -hmm. And you start going, right, I get why I need to do that in the short term, but I'm really starting to see the price that's being paid by me and by them and by my organization for that behavior. And once you start seeing those choices, actually then you've got a better chance to actually shift your behavior around that. So if we, if we take, let's just take one of those at the moment, let's take the notion of save it. Yeah. And you're saying that there's a prize for the person who's saving, but there's also yeah. a price which may even be a punishment yeah. for them or others. Just walk us through what that might look like. Sure. If save it is your advice monster, and the truth is you have all three of these archetypes showing up, but save it is one that's kind of loudest for you at the moment. You're like, oh, look, my job is to make sure Nobody finds it difficult. Nobody struggles. Nobody stumbles. So I'm going to jump in and fix it and solve it and give them the answer and help them out and be supportive. So the prize is, is you feel helpful. You feel noble. You feel slightly like a burning martyr because you know nobody actually appreciates how much work you're doing to keep everybody safe and make everybody okay. You have your fingers in everybody's pie, <laughs> kind of. So it's a bit of a subtly controlling thing, which is a saver thing. You have people that you're perpetually trying to save, so you feel needed. Mm-hmm. All of that's true. But the price is significant. I mean, the price on you is, A, you're exhausted. <laughs> I mean, you're trying to do your job. You're trying to do everybody else's job as well. The price is also that actually your, your advice isn't as good as you think it is, so your saving actions aren't that helpful. The price is your rescuing action creates victims. So actually now you're disempowering people by trying to fit with that. You're pulling people away from taking responsibility for their own accountability and their own possibilities. That means you're creating an organization, a team that's dependent on you. You're becoming the bottleneck for your own team. Right, the list goes on. It just goes on. And part of you is like, look, I am exhausted. I'm frustrated. I'm annoyed. We're not having that much impact as a team, but at least I'm helping everybody. Right. So I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think. Yeah. So prizes yeah. and punishments. Yeah. I love that. We are sitting here on a Monday evening having a glass of wine as, as we chat this through. And it reminds me of a part in your book that I had never come across before. And I, and I love the whole story. And that is the whole nudging behaviors and how classical music can change the taste right. of wine. Which really intrigued me. And yeah. I thought, well, I, I'm not sure how that's going to fit into our conversation tonight. <laughs> I think we should make it. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, when you, when you get into the world of behavior change, you can't help but get into kind of behavioral economics. And, you know, there's all sorts of books around that from Thinking Fast and Slow to Nudge is another one of the, the key books. And what it just tells me, part is just how irrational we actually all are. And we've got part of our brain that kind of post-rationalizes everything that makes us sound like we're sensible. We don't realize how influenced we are by our environment. And this story is, is a telling one. It's a wine tasting. You come into a nice room, you know, what wine tasting's like, dark room, like lights making the glasses sparkle. You've got four bottles of wine. There's no labels on them, so you don't know what you're going to be tasting. There's music playing in the background. And you drink the first one. It's delicious. It's a red wine. It tastes kind of light and fruity. So who knows what it is, maybe a Pinot Noir or something like that, something, you know, kind of on that end. You taste the the two in the middle, they're perfectly pleasant. The music shifted and the the mood's changed a bit. You pick up the fourth glass and you're like, oh, this is deep and it's rich and it's kind of a bit provocative and it's it's a different wine altogether. And the feedback's had. And then you discover... They tell you that the music, as it's changed, it started with Vivaldi, actually, the Four Seasons, so spring, and it's all a bit kind of flirty music. The music ends with Wagner. It's kind of big, stormy. I mean, I'm not a great classical music person, but it's it's all about that kind of emotions and roiling blackness. And it's like, well, that's all well and good, but who cares? But here's the magic. The first glass of wine and the fourth glass of wine, they were the same wine. Right. But 
when you drink the wine and you listen to Vivaldi, you're like, oh, this is a light, fruity, sparkly wine. And when you drink the wine and you listen to Wagner, you're like, okay, it's rich and it's dark and it's stormy. And it's just a symbol for just to what extent we are influenced by the world around us in a way that you never really understand. Now, that gives you great power if you start understanding that. You know, with great power comes great responsibility, or so Spider-Man tells us. You and I have worked together as facilitators. And when we've been facilitators, we've talked about the power of priming people. And it's a similar thing. You know, when I'm facilitating a group, I'll say something, just like I'm saying to the podcast audience at the moment. You know what? You're going to find this next bit really useful. I mean, you're going to love it. It's fantastic. It's one of my favorite bits. And now the audience is like, oh, exactly. I'm already enjoying this next bit, even though I don't know what it is. And that's me choosing Vivaldi or Wagner because I'm priming them by setting up the context. And people don't even hear it, but it's a way of constantly managing their environment. Now, there's a way that you can use that power for evil or, you know, evil's overstating it, but, you know, to manipulate people. And people do. That's how cults get built is they build all sorts of priming and triggers and stuff in the environment that gets a certain degree of compliance uh, with the folks that are there. It's a tool that you can bring into your leadership as well, because you can say things just like, you know what, this is going to be a great conversation. I'm really looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to seeing how you step up to the challenge ahead of us here. So what's on your mind? And I've just primed you to kind of already feel better about this conversation. And I love that. The idea of being coached like on a, as you said, be often perspective right. means that whenever I go to my leader, I know that I'm going to be engaging in a conversation that's forcing me to think, yeah, forcing me to wrestle with my issues and potentially force me to walk out with a solution that I didn't know I had. Right. And maybe I've got a partner in my leader, but that maybe I don't need it. Nonetheless, yeah. I walk out in an engaged way every single time because I've been primed by that process. Right. And I think that's powerful. I think it's right. very, very powerful. Moving on to, let's see where we get to, but let's move on to the last topic. Um, you've used the word curiosity yeah. a lot. Now, for folks who don't know your background, you're someone who has started in Canberra in law and then you moved to Oxford on a Rhodes scholarship in a, de a defamation process, which is far <laughs> too long a story to share here. Yeah. You moved into innovation. Yeah. Anybody who doesn't know this, but Michael Bungie Stainer might be the reason why you love pizza because he's a guy who figured out cheese crusts. I, I can't take all, I can't take all the, all the credit for stuffed crust, but I tell you, I think I found out the other day, which I'm super excited about. In this world of innovation, we did a lot of work in kind of foodstuffs. And one of our clients, you know, I didn't just work in pizza, I worked in alcohol as well. So, you of know, course. The, the, the full healthy diet thing. For Diageo, the big spirits thing, I was part of a team that invented a brand new whiskey called Loch Du, which means the Black Lake in Gaelic. The challenge we were trying to overcome was that scotch at the time was not a cool drink. It was an old fogies drink. I mean, now it's kind of hip and cool, you know, single malts and the like. But at the time, we, we were just trying to go, how do we make it cool like vodka? Because flavored vodka was all the rage. And we're like, we need to compete with that. So we came up with this thing called the Black Lake. And the idea was that the whiskey would have been held in charcoal barrels and kind of given this kind of darkness to it. But nobody had time for that. So actually, it was just kind of filled with kind of caramel coloring and the right. like. Anyway, <laughs> I looked this up the other day because I wanted to tell the story in the new book. And I think it's called Scotch something or other dot com. They're like, this is the worst single malt whiskey <laughs> ever invented. It, it, you know, it sells for hundreds of dollars a bottle now because of its rarity, but it's just like, it is, it is, it is a hideous <laughs> follow And I'm like, very small role in stuffed crust pizza, significant role in the worst scotch ever invented. That's why I moved on from that profession. I was never going to flourish in it. Man, no one was ever successful without a few failures along well, the way. I'm very proud of those failures. Yeah. <laughs> Nonetheless, your, your whole history is of someone who experiments, who plays, who yeah. learns fast, who goes on and applies stuff. You mentioned the word curiosity quite a lot today. In this podcast series, I'm all, almost astounded as to how many leaders I've interviewed who have talked about their own development is a, is a direct correlation to when they started becoming curious yeah. and how they amplify that. What is your experience of how to become more curious? Or what are some of the practices you engage in in order to help you stay curious? Yeah. The reason that's such a useful question is that the science will tell you that curiosity is a bit of a learned trait. I know there's inherent curiosity that we have, but 
curiosity is sparked when you notice a gap. And if you get to a place where you never notice the gap, you're never going to be curious. So there's a way that you've got to get, for adults certainly, you've got to get a flywheel spinning for curiosity to start being part of the way that they work. So once you get the flywheel spinning, it's easier. Like I'm super curious because I'm just aware of how many gaps (laughs) there are between who I am, what I know and who I'd like to be and what I don't know and what's possible in this world. So there's a part of a curiosity for me, which is like curiosity breeds curiosity. I love learning. I'm kind of hungry around that. I love meeting new ideas or new people. But if you're already not curious, you've got to find a way to, to spark curiosity. Now, then the question for me is like, so where's the most interesting gap? Sometimes that can be a gap around a subject matter. Like, ah, I realized I'd, I wouldn't mind learning a bit about playing the guitar. I'm looking at your guitar in the corner there. And I just don't even know where to start with that. Why don't I Google something? There's something happening. And there's a first number in the, the Fibonacci sequence, which is about to get interesting. It might be, uh, this is my 19th relationship that's broken down. Maybe it's not them. <laughs> Maybe it's me. What can I learn about me? You know, who I am. And there's that degree of self-reflection about, oh, I do know this about me. I don't know this about me. And now that's another piece of curiosity. So that's a really interesting question, which is like, what takes you from zero to one in terms of getting curious? Because once you're at one, the rest starts getting interesting. And I think it's interesting that you're the leaders you've spoken to going, things took off when I started to learn how to get curious. So if you're listening to this and you're like, I'm not an inherently curious person, the first thing I'd ask you is, what if you, first of all, challenge that as an idea? Because actually, as soon as you go, I am an, I am an inherently curious person, that makes it easier. Yeah, yeah. Telling yourself your story, it's li- hearing what your stories are and going, is that true? <laughs> or is yeah. that just a story I've got going? That can make a difference. And if you're ambitious and you're like, why aren't I more successful? Well, then when you hear Pod go, all the leaders that I interview and they're all successful go, being curious, it makes all the difference. Then you're like, okay, so get curious about that. What do you think they got curious about? Was it about how power works? Was it about how people succeed in their organization? Was it about a subject matter expertise? Was it something outside work? You know, there's this amazing research that says, if you are a Nobel Prize winner, you are significantly more likely to have a weird expertise in things like juggling or game playing or music. You know, you've built a whole other world that is about curiosity in another field. Right. And there's just a direct correlation between, honestly, if you're a scientist and you want to get a Nobel Prize, you should develop a quirky hobby. It increases the odds that you're going to get a Nobel Prize. Because the whole ability to learn something new will translate into whatever you're, you're good at or want to be good at anyway. I'm not sure I've heard the correlation is or the causation of that is, but there is a correlation between that, which is like, you know what? Nobel Prize for economics, also Dungeons and Dragons. (laughs) A few weeks ago, we interviewed a gentleman called Stuart Ellensley, who the phrase he used was curiosity has become my antidote to my judgment. What he said was that ended up in him becoming really good at giving feedback, which was never his intention. Right. But because he was entering into conversations with, I wonder why this person thought this or did this or X, whatever it was, it ended up being a very different conversation to one with, I need to tell them they've done that wrong. Right. That may open the door to the correlation, I suspect, is if I'm starting with curiosity, I am wondering about possibilities as opposed to I've got a view already that's preformed. But I think the other thing is a willingness to be unsure and be in doubt. A good deal of what feeds my curiosity, it's just I've got a really clear sense of how how much I know, and it's not much. <laughs> I know I just don't know that much. When you get suspicious of your own certainty and your own ability to preach the truth, it doesn't mean that you remove kind of moral foundation to who you are and what's important in the world. But if you're like, I wonder if that's true, <laughs> or I wonder if that's just the story I've got around this. When we teach coaching, we're saying, look, the goal is, can you stay curious a little bit longer? One of the resistances people have is like, look, you've got to make a decision sometime. And I'm like, you do, and you'll get there. But if you can stay curious just a little bit longer, rush to action and advice giving a little bit more slowly, then powerful things happen. 
Let's jump to what's next for you. So you, you've mm. recently stepped aside from the CEO of Boxer Cranes. You handed it over to Lovie Shannon, who's exactly. now leading the organization to yeah. its next level of success. <laughs> so much. It's amazing how that organization is flourishing since I've stepped away. <laughs> I'm trying not to take that personally. She's, we're coming up to two years, which is amazing. That's already been that long. But it's so, you know, when people go, oh, look, I'm humbled by this, meaning thank you for giving me the prize because I'm awesome. <laughs> You mean every second posting on LinkedIn. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Whereas moving away from the, being the CEO of Boxer Crowns is truly a humbling experience because I'm like, oh. <laughs> That's what it's supposed to do. <laughs> look what everybody's doing now that I'm now that I'm no longer casting that shadow. But yeah. Well, that is humble of you to say so, but I suspect it's also humbling to have lived that. But nonetheless, stepping away has allowed other people to come in and build on the foundations. But what is it allowing you to do and what, what's next for you? The first thing that it allowed me to do was be unsure of myself. So I founded Box of Crayons about 20 years ago. So for 18 years, that was my kind of primary association. It's Michael, the guy who's Box of Crayons. And because my surname's complicated, it's like often I was like Michael Crayons or Michael Box of Crayons because Bungay Staniel was a bit too much of a mouthful. And it meant that I'd spend quite a lot of time talking about coaching and coaching in organizations and curiosity and the like. And part of stepping away from box of crayons, which was a very deliberate process. We, Shannon and I worked, re- we, we spent a year warming up to it. We had a coach who we hired for a two-year p- period, a year before and a year after to manage the transition because founder transitions, they fail all the time because founders are a nightmare. <laughs> They're like, this is awesome. I'm going to give up all the stuff that I don't want and still meddle with all the stuff that I'm kind of interested in. <laughs> And so we, I, I did not want to compromise Shannon's ability to be a great CEO for her sake, but for my sake as well. I didn't want to screw myself over. So, but now I'm like, I'm not the guy who shows up and steps into the spotlight when we talk about coaching. I'm not the guy that gets wheeled into all of the meetings at Box of Crayons to try and close a deal because I, you know, because I've written a book. So it allowed me to step out of the valley of coaching and, and look around and go, what else? is here for me. I did one thing that was really powerful. There's a, a woman called Erin Weed and she does something called The Dig. And it's a, she says, okay, give me, give me two half-day sessions and I'll give you your operating system, your keywords. And like, I'm a good facilitator. So I just didn't believe that. <laughs> I was like, there's no way that you're going to- She hasn't primed you. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's no way that you're going to be able to do that with me <laughs> because I'm special. But she had a couple of testimonials on a website that made me go, okay, I know these people and if they think it's good, maybe it's worth a go. So I started doing this thing with Erin and she's basically saying, just tell me a story and let me listen and I'll start hearing stuff and building this ecosystem for you, operating system. And she came up with three core words for me, one of which was my kind of core word. And I was pretty sure what it's going to be. It's going to be like curiosity or coaching or possibilities or creativity, something like that. But it was actually the word power. And, you know, Pod raises his eyebrows and I raise my eyebrows as well. But actually, I've got lots of stories in my life, everything from being sued by a law school lecturer for defamation to being banned from my high school graduation, where I've tried to successfully or unsuccessfully disrupt traditional power structures in some way. And I think coaching is actually about that. It's about, you know, we talked earlier about empowerment and what the act of asking a question does is it's an act of empowerment. It's an act where power is shifted. And that was a very liberating moment for me because it suddenly opened up a different valley to walk through. And it gave me a beacon against which I could decide what to do and what not to do. What am I going to say yes to? What am I going to say no to? It now had a context for that. So the shift for me is, you know, Box of Crowns is a kind of B2B organization that works with organizations like Microsoft and Gucci and Salesforce and the like to help bring coaching skills into those big organizations. My new kind of game is mbs.works. That's the, the website. And that's more of a individual piece. It's helping people be a force for change. How do, how do people have the courage and the skills to get out there and make a difference in the world? And a key part of that is, is helping them set worthy goals. So a worthy goal for me is something that is thrilling and important and daunting. This is kind of what the new book is about. So that's kind of the work at the moment is the new book comes out in January. It's 
about helping people set these worthy goals so that even whether you work in a big company or a small company or by yourself, you can claim ambition for yourself and for the world and make a difference and be a force for change. I love that. I wasn't aware of that word power. I remember you telling me at the time you were going through that process, with yeah. you, but I didn't, really, I didn't know the end output of it. What I do know is that the way you think is quite powerful. The way you help give people processes allows them and others to be very powerful in what they're right. trying to do and is very empowering as well. So I'm not surprising that word comes up for you. And I do know you well enough to know that, yes, you do love disrupting structures of any kind, (laughs) whether appearing naked or semi-naked in a a, a school show or whatever it is. It it is about disruption. Michael, I'm delighted that you've been able to make time for us here on this episode to share some of your insights, but certainly not all of them. Pod's only wrapping this up because he's finished the bottle of wine. He got me talking the whole interview while he drank all the wine. This this is a disruption of power right now. Absolutely. And on that note. <laughs> <laughs> so when is your book coming out? So last uh, words. January 2020, next year, 2022. And where can people find you if they want to connect with you? MBS.works is definitely the place to go. It's, a, you know, it's the hub site. You can connect to me on social, but I'm not there that often. But at MBS.Works, one of the cool things I've got is something called the Year of Living Brilliantly. It's a free year-long program, 52 different teachers. Basically, you sign up and you get a short video, two to six minutes every week. And it's just a, a range of really great teachers from Susan Kane to Alexander Osterwilder to Austin Cleon. It's a really diverse, provocative group of teachers. I think... I gave one of those episodes, I think it's Deborah Millman. I think yeah, uh, yeah. I gave my, my daughter Grace, who, who you know is yes, studying right. marketing at Macquarie University. And I gave Deborah's lesson to Grace going, you got to watch this. It's the best marketing lecture you'll ever get. It's, like, it's like episode. the essence of the entire world of branding in a really condensed little video from Deb Millman, who is, she, she has the world's most popular podcast on branding and marketing. Michael, as always, a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. And we look forward to getting your book when it comes out in January. Thanks, Fod. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Leadership Diet. If you enjoy that conversation, I've recorded my own reflections and a summary of that in the next episode. It's just a few minutes long and it's lined up straight away so you can download it after this. And I've designed it to spark your memory of the conversation Occasionally, I suggest some reflections to consider, and I also hint at where you might want to go next if this subject particularly interested you. So to round off this conversation, just click on the next episode and enjoy a few minutes reflection time. After that, head over to leadershipdiet.com where you can subscribe to the podcast, to our blogs, retrieve show notes, including whatever resources, songs or band was mentioned by our guest. And finally, the best way you can support this podcast is by submitting a review on Apple, subscribing on whatever platform you listen to, and sharing this podcast with your colleagues and friends so they might gain any insights from our guests.